0: your co-host. Today, we're going to be talking to Tara Mitchell, who is the Director of Risk at WISH and is now Signified Senior Director of Chargeback and Abuse Recoveries. We're going to talk about how she grew her career in the risk field, and she has some advice for those who are interested in doing the same. Welcome to the Fearless Commerce Podcast. So Tara, it uh, it was great catching up with you at Flow in April at uh, Signified's Flow Summit. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what's new? Anything new since then?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I've been busy. I, I traveled to Hawaii and uh, celebrated my son's second birthday, and I actually made a decision to change roles. So uh, as you know, I have uh, left my role in Two-Sided E-Commerce Marketplace, and I joined Signified at the beginning of June.
0: I, I had heard that. So we're we're really happy to have you. Um, and if I if I may be so bold, uh, why is signified? Could you talk a little bit about why you made that decision? Maybe the bigger decision to change lanes a little bit.
1: Yeah. So this is something I'd kind of been thinking about for a little bit of kind of how to pivot my career and what the next step for me looked like. Uh, and I talked, about it with my husband as I do of everything. And as I was talking about where would I possibly want to go next? And what would kind of a, a, a challenge or somewhere appealing to me to go look? Um, my husband, maybe half jokingly, but maybe very half serious said, what about that company you work with that you talk about that you always like? Like, they're so nice. And they have 40 work weeks. That sounds awesome. Why don't you see if they would hire you? And at the time, I kind of laughed it off of like, "Yeah, I'm not going to go just ask this company to hire me. But you can't do that. And then about a week or two later, I saw the job posting at Signified. And I thought, heck, why? Why don't I go see if they'll hire me? And so I ended up going and talking. I already knew so many people at Signified and had a great relationship. And so I said, Hey, you know, I've, I've loved working with you on the other side of it. And I'm looking for a next step. You know, would you be interested in me and went through the interview process and, and, you guys chose me and I chose you. So um, I'm super thrilled to be here. And so far it's lived up to the expectations of like, everybody has been incredibly warm and welcoming. It's, it's been a nice transition. I'm learning a new side of the business yeah. because I'm this is my first time not in the, ED, uh, the, the e-commerce marketplace model, but um, I've built enough connections and there's enough domain experience that I'm trying to hit the ground running.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, it's really exciting for us. We're really happy to have you and to have, you know, someone who, uh, if, if you won't say it, but someone who is a leading expert in risk and fraud and e-commerce in general. So why don't we just go ahead and um, get on to the episode that, that we recorded with you at Flow? This is the Fearless Commerce Podcast, a regular plunge into understanding why commerce leaders do what they do and how they embrace fearlessness in the face of retail. Today, we're talking with Tara Mitchell, the Director of Risk at Global Marketplace Wish and one of the leading experts in the field of online fraud and risk. Welcome, Tara.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Seriously, we're really, really pleased to have you. And Want to hear a little bit about your story, and thought we might even start there. Uh, you, you've worked for some pretty cool places in the uh, pantheon of e-commerce, and I'm just wondering how you got rolling in e-commerce, and, and sort of how you ended up doing what you're doing today.
1: Yeah. So um, my my fun backstory is that uh, as a kid, I always wanted to be in secret agent movies. I love <laughs> secret agent movies. Um, and I never wanted to be James Bond or Jason Bourne. I wanted to be the person in the safe house on the headset that was giving them instructions on like how to get out of things or like, Oh, there's someone coming at you. And so when I got into college, I looked at how do I, how do I get into something like that? How do I get into the CIA or something like that? And there were three big majors. There was accounting, there was engineering, and there was law. And I discovered I was really good at math, so I could do really well in accounting. And I, so I went into accounting and I diverged into forensic accounting, which is basically how do we, how do we detect fraud using financial statements? And I got myself an internship with the Internal Revenue Service in their criminal investigations department. And I discovered that I loved the work, but I was not cut out for law enforcement, unfortunately. I was a terrible culture match. Um, And so I kind of bummed around for a couple of years figuring out like, okay, what does my life look like now that this big dream has been dashed and I'm never going to, you know, do this kind of stuff until uh, I was living in Brooklyn in the time and I saw that Etsy was hiring. And my thought was like, well, I'm just going to look at their jobs page and see if there's something I can possibly do because this seems like a really cool company and I'm in a rut right now. And the first time I looked. I didn't see anything I can do because I looked at the accounting page and I was like, Oh, they want senior accountants. I don't have the experience. And then I said, like, okay, I'm going to go back one more time. We're going to see. And they were hiring up their very first risk team and they needed somebody to come in and process chargebacks. And so I applied for it. I put my resume, you know, out there with like, I have background and like, I've studied this in school. I've done an internship. I have no real world experience, but I have studied this. That's and amazing. then I just googled my way through like i need to learn payment processing <laughs> That's and i just googled my way through it i ran from like my job that was ending um to like interviews with them like shoving a sandwich on my, oh, in my face on the train and i managed to make it through the interview because they were looking for really raw, like young junior people who could do this Mm -hmm. to hire their first team. And so I managed to get myself in the door there.
0: Sounds like you did sort of a a do-it-yourself Coursera there.
1: I absolutely (laughs) did. And that's kind of something I've been a couple times in my career is like where it's just like, I don't really know enough to do this, but I'm just going to go like throw myself into it and just like boot camp as much as I can to get where I need to do. To get to that next step and learn as I'm going.
2: That's amazing. And I, I'm curious to hear, um, how did Etsy... What was their perspective on who they were trying to hire? Did you yeah. fit their profile? Or was that also something that they discovered that you're the perfect fit? Yeah. Only after you met with them.
1: Um, so I don't know exactly why they brought me in for the first interviews. I was like just working on blind luck and hope at the moment Um, but looking at the other people they hired um, they were looking for people who had some sort of relevant background but not necessarily who'd worked in risk we had somebody who had like a criminology degree we had somebody who had done customer support and handled returns we had people who had done economic like consulting, but not necessarily fraud specific. And then we had one person who actually had been a manual reviewer. And that, that was like the one rare <laughs> person that they brought in. And then they had me where it's like, you've investigated tax fraud. That's kind of like financial fraud that we can apply yeah. here. So we think you could probably like adjust the skill sets and you're, you're junior enough that like you're willing to learn on the job.
0: So that's that's Etsy. And that, yeah. what, ha- what happened next?
1: So I stayed at Etsy for three and a half years, went from manually data entering and fighting chargebacks and, and grew my skill set. And we built transaction monitoring out. We built ATO prevention out. We built automation so that I wasn't managing chargebacks out of a Google spreadsheet. Um, and along the way, I got a chance to start taking some classes from other uh, folks at Etsy in SQL. And I started building out my technical oh, wow. skills. So again... Just trying to be like, I, I was good at statistics and math in college, but I don't have a programming language. Well, I'm going to get enough of a prog- programming language that I can go get myself in the door at Uber. And so I went and gave a presentation and one of the, the, actually the first person who ever did risk at Uber saw it and said, go talk to this person. I think like they'd be a really good find for our initial like set of analysts. And so, I fully own that I barely skated by my technical interview because I was like self-taught sequel just like throwing everything I could into a very basic problem, but I made it. It's amazing. And so uh, when I kind of came on there, I definitely dealt with a lot of imposter syndrome of being like everybody here has technical degrees and I'm skating by on what I have. And my boss took me aside and said, you're the only one that's actually fought fraud at another company. So like you're here because you know what it looks like from the ground up somewhere else you'll learn the technical skills on the way. But in the meantime, I need somebody who actually knows what a chargeback is and, and can bring in some of that experience in the operations space.
2: That's yeah, amazing. That is. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Did you find a, a significant difference between those two roles in terms of the nature of the role or the skills that were needed? Or did you find it to be very similar?
1: Uh Absolutely. I definitely came in there thinking like, oh, I've got this. Like, yeah. I did this at Etsy. I got this. And no, it was completely different. Because Etsy had, you know, they were a a retailer. So there's there's things being shipped. We had time. We could throw people mm-hmm. at the problem. And at Uber, suddenly everything had to be real time. All mm. the decisions had to be real time. You could never throw people at the problem to manually review something or evaluate something, it all had to be automation first. And so that's where I had to just dig in, build my SQL skills to be able to say I intuitively know what it should look like. But I now have to build the technical skills to say I can do this in an automated fashion. Instead of saying like, throw it over to me, I'm a good reviewer, I know what I'm looking at, I'll find the fraud for you. I had to start translating that into something really scalable.
0: That is amazing when you think about it. I mean, how quickly the transaction and the service is delivered mm-hmm. with something like Uber. Um, yeah, the whole different, whole yeah. different ballgame. But actually, I mean, what, so what's the payoff for the fraudster with Uber? Did, uh, is it just people looking for free rides or how does that? Work. So
1: it's actually surprisingly scalable, and in very insidious ways, it really lends itself to, um, to like a scalable business model almost. Because one person taking advantage of Uber, you can take a bunch of joy rides on a credit card. Like it's one person cannot have that much impact mm-hmm. because you can only be in a car how twenty four <laughs> hours a day in yeah. one place. Um, but where fraudsters found really effective ways to scale it is in what we call agent service, which is. I'm a fraudster and I've got a ton of stolen credit cards and credentials and Mm -hmm. I know that I'm good at getting this. I'm going to continuously have them. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go on um, a gray market. I'm going to go on a WhatsApp chat group or a WeChat group and I'm going to advertise Uber rides and I'm going to say, you're going to take an Uber ride and I'm going to get you half price for what you would normally pay if you ordered this yourself. And so you say like, that sounds like a great deal. You text me and say like, I want to get picked up right here, right now and I go into my uber app that has a stolen credit card attached to it and i order you an uber you pay me and then i really never pay uber uber now absorbs all these losses and these accounts are scaling and they're moving right, fast right because they're using these accounts they're churning through them in 24 hours and then they're gone and so that is how they scaled and were able to just drastically like profit off of uber because they're not Stealing our rides, they're reselling them and, and making a profit off of that.
0: Right. You're right. Diabolical. I yeah. mean, there's yeah. just so much out there. I love it. So, it's amazing. Um, and, and now Wish, right?
1: Yeah. And then now, yeah, I was Uber for four and a half years. Now I'm at Wish, um, directing, uh, risk operations and analytics and thinking about what our long-term strategy is back in the physical goods space for the most part. But whereas, Uber, sorry, as Etsy, we were very focused on small business sellers that were likely selling to somebody within the same country just mm-hmm. because shipping becomes prohibitively ex- uh, expensive. Now we're looking at larger, you know, mid-sized manufacturers that want to reach a market that is outside their country of origin. And so almost all of our transactions are going cross-border and we're helping them with the logistics and we're trying to match up sellers and buyers that don't speak the same language right. that are using different shipping options that are trying to bridge vast differences uh, and vast physical spaces uh, in order to deliver goods with a value conscious proposition. Like wish is right. known for us being like a place for deals, a, a place for, you know, where you want to get the best bang for your buck money. Um, and so trying to keep something that can go that far in distance at a very cost and a uh, cost attractive price point for our users.
2: Is yeah, it, is it wow. fair to say that the complexity of your role has changed and has grown quite a bit, or would you find this again, similar to some of your other roles that you've had?
1: I'd say it's probably in some ways more akin to Etsy yeah. because there's a certain amount of like, we can manual review right. if we decide to, um, there's, there's a physical good moving. So we, we have a clear idea of like, what is actually moving. Um But in a lot of ways, it's actually akin to Uber because Uber's big marketing, it, its big market share was on logistics. We're moving people at mm-hmm. rapid, rapid scales. And a lot of the core value proposition of Wish is that we can move things really far distances and match buyers and sellers in really disparate parts of the world in a cost-effective way. Got so yeah. everything is moving long distances and changing hands multiple times in a way that... Maybe we didn't always have to deal with it, Etsy.
0: Yeah, it's it's actually very interesting to think about all this international activity and international mm-hmm. expansion is on a lot of people's minds. Um, is is when it comes to fraud and risk, can you learn something from each region, or do you have to reinvent what you're doing in each region, or how does that uh, factor across the world? Really,
1: so there's definitely certain regions that behave together, of course, that you know have similar. Preferences, similar language, similar services, but it's not a one size fits all that, you know, what works for a Wish customer in the US is going to be very different than what works for a Wish customer in Brazil or a Wish customer mm-hmm. in Germany and things like that. And so we've had to tailor not just, uh, especially tailor our um, our payment offerings to the space to understand like what the preferential payment methods are, and then tailor our risk aspect expectations. Um, because uh, the, the example I always use is that in the U.S., um, you know, I have a credit card. The only other person that uses that credit card is my husband on a joint account. But in Mexico, it's completely normal t- for friends to borrow each other's credit cards to shop online. And so the kind of behavior that we would expect to be normative for a U.S.-based consumer mm-hmm. is going to – be completely blown away and we're going to flag everybody in Mexico who's just going about their shopping behaviors as normal is going to look very strange through a US-based lens. Same thing if I'm offering credit cards in Germany. Well, Germany doesn't really use credit cards Mm -hmm. to shop online. They're not going to want to check out if they don't see their favorite payment methods. And so each payment method has its own kind of versions of risk. And so there's a lot of Making sure that we're offering what actually is going to be convincing to them and then understanding the risk trade-offs to each type of payment method. Wow.
0: Sounds sounds complicated. Fascinating. Yeah. Keeps you busy, I'm sure. Yes. It's a lot
1: of it's a lot of optimization for which key markets do you really want to go in depth and which ones are just kind of, you know an ROI suck of like, yes, I could optimize for this very small market, but is it going to be a high growth market where this is going to impact a lot of consumers? That's right. the time well spent. Yeah. Makes,
0: makes perfect Excellent.
2: sense. Should we shift gears? Um, I'm curious sure. to ask you what you, what does the term fearless mean to you and what is it, what is it to be fearless in, in, in commerce and your business or in your life?
1: Yeah. So I don't believe there's really anything that you could, any, any, <laughs> person that is fearless because there's always something there's always something whether yeah. it's existential or specific there's still mm-hmm. a doubt there's still a fear to me to be fearless is honestly to be like confident enough that you're going to be okay if you fail because i've failed multiple times in my life in my career um and so that gives me that fearlessness and it's like kind of me telling myself i failed enough times i know what it feels like Yeah. It's going to be okay if I fail again cuz I've seen what that looks like and it's I've picked myself back up I'll keep going. And so failure builds I'm sorry I have it It's a little <laughs> yeah. hard to talk.
2: You doing great.
1: <laughs> failure builds fearlessness because you learn that it's actually not something necessarily to be afraid of. Oh,
0: well, that's great. That's I'm I'm going to I'm going to remember that. I'm going to kind of <laughs> say that to myself over and over. In fact, I had this question I was going to ask because this is the fearless commerce podcast about irrational fears that you might have. But I can't, after hearing your story, I can't imagine it really doesn't sound like you're afraid of much. I mean, this whole idea (laughs) of, of just powering through what you need to know for these various jobs on your own. I, I just find just awesome in, in the true sense of the word. Um, but I'm what, do you know what is that about you? That, that, that created that drive, do you think? Or where does that come from?
1: If, if I, if I could, I'd bottle it and Uh, sell it and make millions. I don't know. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that I don't get knocked down and I'm not afraid. I'm afraid all the time. It's just knowing where I have the capacity to compartmentalize that fear. Where can I be afraid and kind of sit in that feeling when I need to? Mm. And where do I have to kind of set it aside to get something done? But. No, it's, it's not that I'm without fear. It's that I know when I can indulge in my fear and kind of like when I need to take a moment and kind of like bathe in it uh, yeah. and then set it aside. Yeah.
2: And do you find yourself sharing maybe some of those fears with others? Do you lament or uh, talk with your peers or loved ones about that? Or is it something that you just you know, organically have the ability to do?
1: Oh, I absolutely do. You know, my... Yeah. I, my husband hears about everything I'm afraid of. Um, and that's actually one of the most powerful things I found as a people manager is telling my people when I'm afraid and what makes me scared about things because they, of course, are going to have fears. And if they mm. see me and to your point, if I look like, oh, this fearless leader that's never shaken by anything, they're going to think there's something inherently wrong with them if they're afraid of stuff. And right. so I've tried to be very right. empathetic and honest with them. Not that I tell them like panic and fear, like we're all gonna, <laughs> right. you know, go out of business, but it's human.
2: It's human. To yeah. Just I've recognize said like, it. I'm a
1: human being yep. and sometimes I get scared of this stuff and it shakes my confidence. And we just have to kind of like spend a little time in that feeling and then pick ourselves up and figure out what we can do about it. And it's made my people, I think stronger in feeling comfortable that like I'm not immune to those emotions that they're right. feeling. And I totally understand if something that is happening makes them afraid
0: that makes that makes a ton of sense you know there there was at least one more thing i wanted to get to which is i i know you're very passionate about mentorship and about encouraging women in technology um i i'd love to hear how you think we're doing in that regard uh specifically maybe women in technology how are we doing and what you know how much more needs to be done what are your thoughts
1: I think, I think we're making strides, which is good. I, obviously, I like to think I'm part of the solution rather than yeah, that's part of the problem. But, yeah. um, there's still, uh, you know, there's still huge gaps to be made up. I had a really illuminating conversation once with a bunch of my female friends when I was at Uber and each of us were talking about how did we find ourselves in tech and each one of us had a parent. Who was in tech. And for each of us, it was the male parent. And Mm. that's how we knew that there were jobs like this out there. And I think a lot of it is making awareness. My husband's an educator and he's like, I, my students don't know about jobs like yours. There's, there's Mm. no resources out there. It's not one of the things we talk about with them. And especially, you know, for the women that are going into this, there's no necessarily easy role models that are very publicly facing. So I think there's, there's a benefit to having more male Uh, More female founders out there, more female mentors, more females at mid-level manager roles because I didn't have, you know, I've, I've had primarily male managers and I've had some amazing male managers and mentors in my career, but having a female manager felt different because it felt like I wasn't the top level of like aspiration there. There was somebody who clearly had made it to that next step that made it clear that it was something that i could do if i worked for and especially in the technical roles sometimes risk is classified technical sometimes it's not seeing women in leadership roles in data science and engineering and things like that as well because sometimes the margin gets made up over on some of the other sides Mm -hmm. of the company Mm -hmm. without a real emphasis on how are we getting more women across the company not just kind of pocket filling them into certain types of roles
2: right it's amazing yep thank you for that that's great Um,
0: what does your husband teach? I need to my know.
1: husband teaches high school physics right now. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So
0: that's fascinating and, and maybe, um, slightly discouraging that, that like, uh, by a high school, someone interested in physics might not know about the sort of technical roles that are out there.
1: Yeah. Well, he actually teaches at what's called a continuation school, which is for students that aren't on track to graduate right? by traditional means. So, um, a lot of his students, he's trying to give them ideas of things like, Trade schools, um, things that they can do to, to kind of go straight into the job market. Mm-hmm. Cause a lot of them have circumstances where they need to be able to support themselves right. immediately after high school. But one of the things he tells them about is saying like, Hey, there's, there's work at tech companies that you can do that doesn't meet a degree. It's not just a software engineer. There's so many things you can do out there and do, right. um, that are going to get you in the door and lead to a well paying career.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that's incredibly important work really cool. Yeah, excellent.
2: Okay, we're we're getting close to the end of our time. Maybe one last question. Any advice for those that want to get into the risk side of commerce and retail? What would you recommend for someone who's growing their career wants to move into um, your kind of uh, position? What what advice do you have for them?
1: Yeah, so I can't necessarily say do it the way I did, which is fail multiple <laughs> times and spend years trying to find yeah. a job. Um, it may be an inevitability. But I, it, you know, there's still a way out of it. You, you have to. There's a certain amount of persistence that pays off, but there's also a certain amount of time where I just kind of had to take a break from trying to find a role like this and and let myself explore other opportunities and then come back to it. So, I would say, in our industry, there's not a lot you can't Google. Yeah, yeah. Actually doing the research and knowing, you know, knowing how things work, even if it's not at the company you're interviewing at, is going to get you in the door for a lot of the more junior roles, and then. Having some of those tech skills is just immeasurably important, whether it's knowing how to use BI tools like Tableau or SQL, things like that. That's going to get you to a point where you can not just apply some of what you've learned in the domain-specific knowledge, but being able to scale it effectively and show that worth and value there and kind of jump into a new role with the skills you need to be effective immediately rather than looking like you need someone to train you from Hmm. scratch.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Great advice. Perfect. Well, Tara, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to meet you. Thank you for a great conversation. Thank you like, so any much. Any final words? Oh, it's been a lot of fun. It has yeah. been a lot of fun. Well, yeah. yeah. We appreciate I, it. I'm and- going to start Googling stuff and see if I can get ahead a little bit.
0: <laughs> I, I remember
1: Googling what a chargeback was at yeah. my previous job and just being like, Okay. I'm going to teach myself everything I can about chargebacks because I've got an interview tomorrow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's
2: great. You have, you clearly have a passion for what you do too. So yeah. that's a big part of it is just having that, that desire to learn and to dig in and uh, just to be fearless. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.